God, we do uh, give you praise for being a loving God. We are so thankful that we serve a God who uh, knows us, that you know exactly what we need and when we need it. Lord, as we approach uh, an important passage in Isaiah 40, I do want to specifically pray that you would encourage uh, the weary this morning, that you would strengthen the weak, and that you would give hope to the faint-hearted. So God, I pray that you'd be our teacher and our guide through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most difficult things God asks us to do is to wait. It's to wait. We don't like to wait. In fact, many of us would do just about anything than to wait. We are, by nature, impatient people. We expect our Amazon packages to arrive at our doorstep within 48 hours of purchasing them. We choose the shortest checkout line at the grocery store. We want every green light when we are driving. And we also do not like waiting for an appointment. We prioritize efficiency. We want immediate results, instant gratification, up-to-date information. We like our fast food restaurants, especially your pastor. We like our fast internet connections. I want you to just think for a moment about how much time and energy and resources you spend so that you don't have to wait. When you stop and you think about it, it's actually a lot. It seems as though part of our purpose in life is to avoid as much of waiting as possible. This is why we dislike waiting rooms at the hospital. This is why we dislike waiting on biopsy results. This is why we don't like waiting on a new job or waiting to get pregnant or waiting for that wayward child to come back to faith in Christ. Waiting is so hard because it's almost always tied to a lack of control that we feel. And yet, waiting is not only a part of life, Waiting is one of the primary tools that God uses in order to grow and shape his people. Waiting is so important both to God and to his people that uh, waiting throughout the Bible is actually positioned as a command for God's people to wait on the Lord. In fact, the word wait or waiting appears over 139 times throughout the Old and the New Testament. Now, not every occurrence that has a command to wait, but a lot of them do. It shows us that waiting is not optional. It's not something that we can avoid. You don't get into the fast lane of Christianity and dodge waiting. This is something that is commanded. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, this is Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And then Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Waiting is a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, if you trace the Bible and you look at all of God's people who have prolonged periods of waiting, it's actually a pretty long list. If Abraham, who waited 25 years to have his son from the time in which his son was promised, Joseph waited 20 years from having a dream in which his brothers would bow down to him to actually that coming into fruition. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt 40 years after he realized that he was God's anointed rescuer. David waited 14 years after Solomon anointed him king before he actually took the throne. 
Look, the lesson of waiting is inescapable, and yet it is very challenging because waiting creates a gap. That waiting means that you are living in the in-between of what God has promised and that promise actually being fulfilled. This gap is the present compared to that promise being realized. That's the waiting period. You could actually say that the whole of the Christian life is one of waiting. Or you could put it this way, that waiting is what it means to be a Christian. And this is why Advent is so important. In fact, all throughout history, Christians have observed this season leading up to Christmas as a time of Advent, which means arrival or coming. At these four Sundays before Christmas is an intentional time of preparation for celebrating the birth and the arrival of Jesus. But it's a time of waiting of God's people, that we wait with a great expectation and eager suspense at the coming of Jesus as we prepare our hearts to receive him. And yes, Advent is a time in which we celebrate God's coming, but it involves two different points in history. That yes, Advent, we celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas time, but there's also something called a second Advent, Jesus' second return when he comes and brings his people into glory. Well, Advent shapes the hearts of God's people as we learn to live in the in-between of those two hinges in human history. We learn to live in between what God has done in and through Jesus and what God will do when Jesus returns. So Advent teaches us to wait faithfully. And church, we need to learn this lesson because the only thing that is more challenging than waiting on God is wishing that you had. So this morning, as we kick off this new sermon series on Advent, we're really just going to look at this concept of what, what does it mean to wait on God? Isaiah 40 helps answer that question, what it means to wait on God, by providing three things in verses 27 through 31. So waiting on God means, here's number one, rehearsing truth concerning God's greatness. You cannot wait well if you fail to remember who God is. You cannot wait well if you fail to remember who God is. Now, in Isaiah 40, what's happening with God's people is that this knowledge of God's greatness was beginning to leak out of their hearts. <laughs> that Isaiah 40, this is in some regard a turning point in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah is, is writing to the Jews, to God's people who've been taken captive by Babylon. And in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah has spent much of, of those chapters warning God's people of God's impending judgment because God's people have been stubbornly disobedient. And that's exactly what happened. God's people were taken captive by Babylon. They lost their land. Their temple has been destroyed. And all hope seems lost. But Isaiah 40 is the turning point. This is a new section. This is a new message, if you will, of comfort and promise and, and even of hope. And Isaiah extends those things to God's people by relaying a promise from God that God will rescue them, that God will deliver them. It's an amazing promise if you're God's people during this time. But the problem is, is that promise is out there in the future. 
The issue for God's people here is the presence. It's the right now. What do God's people do as they wait for God to come through with this promise? See, in Isaiah 40, God's people, they are living in the gap. They are living in this in-between of God's promise of rescue and that promise being fulfilled. They've been in captivity for decades at this point, teetering on the edge of despair. They were beaten down from years of waiting and are weary from unmet longings to return to their homeland. That minutes turned into weeks, that slid into months, that rolled into years, year after year after year of waiting. So Isaiah 40, these are words that give hope to the weary in the meantime. These are words that give promise and direction to the waiting. And boy, did God's people need it. They are living in this, uh, this mass house arrest type situation in Babylon, and they are beginning to doubt God. They are feeling as if God had abandoned them, and they're hearing the, these promises from the prophet Isaiah that God's going to rescue them, God's going to deliver them, but they're not so sure. I mean, after all, the very worst situation happened to Israel. They lost their land. Their temple had been destroyed. So for them, they're, they're wondering, will God come through on his promise? After all, he let Babylon take us over. Will he truly deliver and rescue us? And you can see those doubts are, are behind and even driving this question in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? This is what the Israelites felt. They felt as if they were being hidden from the Lord, as if God had, had disregarded them. They felt forgotten by their God. They felt abandoned by him, as if God could not see them, as if God were no longer listening. God was no longer for them. They felt this distance that God was, was far away and aloof. And I wonder if you've ever been there before with the Lord. If you've ever felt that way, the way that the Israelites feel in Isaiah 40. That when you needed God the most, it seems like he's playing this cosmic hide-and-seek game with you. I'm sure you have. I wonder how many of us are in that season right now. Or maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but you feel this deep-seated frustration with God because he's not working the way that you want him to work according to your timetable. This is how the Israelites felt. And, and this is the challenge of waiting, that the agony of waiting not only lies in the nature of the pain itself, but also in the unknown duration that we are forced to endure. Waiting is hard because we don't know how long. We don't know how long this season is going to last. And, and during these seasons of prolonged waiting, as we're calling out to the Lord for, for intervention, for rescue, for help, for something, for anything, and oftentimes God responds in silence, that makes us feel all the more alone. And yet this is how God uses waiting. That the painful reality is God uses waiting to reveal hidden unbelief in our hearts. That as we wrestle with the why God isn't doing this, 
why God's not doing that. He's not working that way. He's slow. He's, his timetable is off. During seasons of waiting, God uses that to show us that underneath those thoughts is a heart that's been drifting slowly toward unbelief for some time. That unbelief is not something that we arrive at overnight. It's a process. And unbelief likes to hide in our hearts so we can't always see it, but it's there. And God uses waiting to to reveal that in our lives. That these thoughts of God, are you there? God, are you working at all? God, have you forgotten about me? Can slowly escalate to God. Do you even know what you're doing? Are you in control at all? God, are you truly good? See, this is where God's people find themselves in Isaiah 40. And if we're not careful, this is exactly where you and I will find ourselves in times of waiting. So what do we do? Well, we rehearse truth concerning God's greatness. Everything in life that matters hinges on who God is. Notice Isaiah's response here in verse 28. It begins by saying, have you not known? Have you not heard? Implying you do know these truths in verse 28. You have heard these things, but you have forgotten them. You need to remind yourself. You need to rehearse the following truths. And that's so helpful for us when we go through seasons of waiting, that oftentimes what we need most is not new information about God. It's not new revelation about who he is. It's not new facts about who God is. What we need more than anything is old truth about God that we have forgotten. And we need to rehearse. We need to remind ourselves of God's greatness. This is exactly what Isaiah does in verse 28. In fact, there are four aspects about God's greatness in verse 28 alone that are important if we are to wait well. Here's the first one is that God is the eternal, everlasting God. That's exactly what Isaiah says. The Lord is the everlasting God. This speaks to the fact that God is eternal. He is equally present to all points of time at once. Just think about that for a moment. Like that'll make your mind explode. That's so unlike us. We are confined to time. We are consumed with the right now, the the present moments, and yet not God. God sees the end from the beginning. His vantage point is perfect because he is infinite. Man, we need to be reminded of this. When we go through seasons of doubts, that God, because he is the everlasting God, the eternal God, his purposes are playing out before us exactly according to his plan, according to his perfect pace. That because his vantage point on time is perfect, he's never in a rush. He's never late. He's never in a hurry. He's always on time, including your season of waiting that you're in right now. And so because our vision on time is so imperfect that we can't see clear enough and God can see the end from the beginning, we are led to trust in him. For as long as we're in this season of waiting, we look to him. But then secondly, 
Notice the next line in verse 28. Another aspect of God's greatness is that he is the creator of all. This is exactly what he says, the creator of the ends of the earth. How encouraging is it to know that God is the maker of heaven and earth, things that are seen and unseen. And God being the creator, this speaks to his dominion, that because he's the creator of all, God rules and reigns over all things. And what this means is that anything that happens, any situation, any circumstance, any difficulty, any hardship is known to God because he's the creator. So wherever life takes you, including those seasons of waiting, God knows about it, that he's the creator. He's the creator of all things, but he's also the creator of you. And I want to emphasize that this morning. Like, we know that. We've heard that since we were little. God made me. But so often, we emphasize the extensive scope of God's creative power to the point where we tend to minimize the personal nature of God being a creator. That God's not just the creator. God is my creator. God is your creator. He made you. He, he, he perfectly designed every detail of who you are, and he did not make a mistake. He did not mess up about how he created you, how he wired you, and what you are walking through right now. And that is so helpful when you're going through seasons of waiting, trusting that because God is the creator, God made me, he knows exactly what I need when I need it, including this season of waiting. Well, the third aspect that we see still in verse 28 about God's greatness is that he's constantly working, constantly working. It says, he does not faint or grow weary. I want you to think about this for a moment that God is always fresh. There's no need for God to be refreshed. He's always fresh. Do you remember the last time you felt fresh? If you're a medical professional, a teacher, just a parent in general, you probably don't remember the last time you, feel, you felt fresh. It seems like we're always tired, but not God. God never tires, never wearies, never feels exhausted. He's always fresh that he has an eternally inexhaustible fountain of energy. And what that means is that he is always at work. He's always on the move. And that's so helpful to just remind ourselves of that in seasons of waiting, because sometimes what we feel during those difficult times, and we would never say this out loud, because this is theologically inaccurate, of course, but what we feel is as if God is taking a nap up in heaven. We know that's not true, but it feels like that because God's not answering our prayers. God is not revealing himself in this season. God's not doing this. God's not doing that. He must be up there snoozing. He must be exhausted running the universe and he needs a power nap or something like that. This is how God's people felt. They felt disregarded by God. They felt forgotten by him. And yet God never wearies. God is always on the move, always at work. Well, what is he doing? Well, Romans 8.28 says that God works out all things, including our seasons of waiting, for the good of those who love him and are called according 
to his purpose. Many of you know I've got three children, and my youngest is two and a half. He's a toddler, which is code for he lives for each day to make messes. Like, that's just kind of how he plays. Like, my wife and I, we joke about this all the time. We've got, like, toys, but he doesn't play with toys. He makes messes. That's his version of play. He empties cupboards. He ruins his sister's kind of play set. And, like, that's entertainment for him. And so when we have everybody home and, you know, there's five of us and there's a level of, you know, just consistent chaos, just the illusion of control as a parent. And when we hear silence, it makes us really nervous, right? When we hear quiet, we automatically assume, like, Milo is up to no good. Like, he is making a mess. He's doing something that he shouldn't be doing right now. Like, even if it's 10 seconds of quiet, my wife and I, we look at each other like, well, yeah, there's another mess we need to clean up. And sure enough, we go and investigate, and he made another mess. Look, how encouraging is it to know that we never have to assume that about God? That when he's not being seen in our lives, when we don't know what he's up to, that we can assume that he's always up to good. He's never making a mess. He's never making a mess in the universe. He's never making a mess in your life. He's always up to something good for you. And he never tires of that. Well, fourthly here, the last aspect of God's greatness still in verse 28 is that he's all wise. He's all wise. He says that his understanding is unsearchable. Translation, God knows exactly what he is doing. Though we cannot figure him out completely, we can trust in his perfectly all-wise plan that's unfolding before our very eyes, including those seasons of waiting. God knows everything. He knows all things. He is the source of all wisdom. His understanding is unsearchable. And this is helpful too, going through seasons of waiting where we are so often tempted to question God, tempted to doubt God, asking those questions, God, do you know what you are doing? And yet his understanding is unsearchable. Look, so often we want to know the why behind our waiting. We want to know the why behind what God is up to that we sometimes think to ourselves, if I would just know the purpose, if I would just know the why behind what he's up to, I would trust God more. Like if I would just have the answers, then I would follow him better. And that's so not true. Like even if you had the, the, the end destination of your season of waiting, if this season of waiting, if you knew was going to end a year from now, that would not cause you to trust God more. That would actually cause you to trust God less. You'd be less dependent upon God. The fact that we don't always know the why, that we don't always know the end destination of our waiting helps us to thrust ourselves into the goodness of God and to trust him all the more. And that's one of the things I think God calls us to. When we go through seasons of waiting, we are invited into worship, even in the waiting, not after the waiting, not after we get that answered prayer, not after we get clarity. No, in the midst of waiting, God invites us to worship. In fact, I don't know if we actually know how to worship 
unless we go through a season of waiting. That waiting shapes our worship. It, it causes us to behold the glory of God in his face and not just in his hand to give us what we want. That we worship the giver and not just the gifts that he gives to us. So I just want to remind us this morning, God is in the waiting. He is in the waiting and the season that you are in. That God is, is not just in the answered prayers or the blessings or the good providence of the Lord. God is in the silence. He's in the wrestling. He's in the seeking. He's in the pursuing of God. That even when you can't see him, even when you can't feel him, even when you don't know what he is doing, be reminded that he is with you and he is for you. I think these truths about God's greatness, they remind us about who he is to get us to this place of worship. So what it means to wait well, well, we rehearse truth concerning God's greatness. But number two is that we seek spiritual strength from God. Verses 29 and 30, it says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall feel or shall fall exhausted. Isaiah declares that God gives to the faints and to the weary and, and, to, the, and to the weak his, God's own power and increases their strength. Why? Because God is the source of all power, all might, and all strength. I was, uh, this last week, I was asked the question by um, a family in our church this week who took a video of their five-year-old daughter who was eating breakfast. And, uh, and she was having a bowl of cereal and she asked her mom, where did God get his powers from? Just a light conversation, eating Cheerios. And, and the, the mom was able to record that. And like, well, let's see what Pastor Chris has to say about this, which is always fun, right? Ask Pastor Chris, okay, I'm thinking, okay, how do I answer this for a five-year-old? And I was thinking about God's power. And I was thinking about how God has always existed. And I basically responded, with the fact that because God has always existed, his power has always existed. That being powerful for God is part of who he is. And without that power, he would cease to exist. He'd cease to be who he is. That his power doesn't grow. It doesn't lessen. It's at maximum capacity at all times. Now, I don't know if she understood that. You know, you plant seeds and you trust the spirit, right? See what happens. But it made me think about God's power more deeply, even in that moment, as I was thinking about that. And so often we think about God's power in abstract terms. Like we throw this, you know, blanket statement that God's powerful, he can do anything. And yes, that is true, but there, there is an element of God's power that we can know and experience and see that leads us to greater worship. Even truths that are in Isaiah 40, like if you want to be encouraged about who God is and his power, just read Isaiah 40 this afternoon. Let me read a couple of these verses describing God's power. Verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, 
and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 18, verses 21, 23, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Or verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, referring to the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God is powerful. There's no one like our God, no one mightier than him, that he can do anything and whatever he wants according to his will. Like God's power is, is almost impossible to comprehend for us who are finite creatures. But what this also means is that God is capable of strengthening you in times when you need it the most. Like, man, we have to personalize the truth that are in Scripture and not feel so distant and not treat them so much like abstract realities. That God is powerful, yes, we praise Him for all that He's done, but this also means that God is powerful to you and can give you the power and strength you need when you are weary and faint when you go through seasons of waiting. And I think that's so much of the anxiety we feel in times of waiting that we are unsure, is God able to make all grace abound to us? We wrestle with that. Will he give us all that we need in times of waiting? And Isaiah 40 says yes and amen. Like you are not at the mercy of your circumstances when you walk through seasons of waiting. You are not at the mercy of the stock market or whatever else you want to point to and rely on. That in order for you to be faithful to the Lord in seasons of waiting, look to his strength. And that is the conclusion that we make. If God is all-powerful, then for us who are helpless, we will seek him for this strength. In fact, that's an amazing exercise to trace all throughout the Psalms, how the, psalm, the psalmist will wait for the Lord, and the result is that psalmist is strengthened, That's, that psalmist is being held up. You see that in Psalm 30, 32, verse 20. You see that in Psalm 27, verse 14. This shows us and this teaches us that waiting is never wasted. That waiting does not mean that we're passive. It does not mean that we're twiddling our thumbs, kind of waiting for this season to go away. That even when nothing is happening, something is happening. That God is on the move and God is at work and God is using waiting to strengthen us by leading us to rely upon him. Because here's the requirement to receiving his strength Here's the condition for divine enablement. It's weakness. It's weakness. It's embracing your weakness. It's owning your weakness. And it's living from 
a posture of weakness. God doesn't give strength to the self-sufficient. He doesn't give power to the strong and the proud. He comes alongside the weak and the humble and the needy. And we will grow to appreciate seasons of waiting when we understand that walking through those seasons actually puts us in tune intimately with just how weak we truly are. And so we wait well by seeking strength from God. Here's the third one and last one. We'll close with this. Hoping God will come through. It's in verse 31. Verse 31 declares, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This word faint, or this, I'm sorry, this word wait in verse 31 is translated in other versions as the word hope. That's true. To wait means to hope. To hope means to wait. We need hope in times of waiting. But this idea of, of hope biblically is not wishful thinking. It's not, oh, I hope that God will come through. No, it's a confident expectation. And we live our lives right now with such a vital connection with the future. And waiting has, has something hoped for at the end of the wait, that we wait and we hope for the right job. We wait and we hope for suffering to end. We wait and we hope for that good health report from the doctor. But we have to ask the question, what if those things aren't given to us? What if the thing that we're hoping for doesn't actually happen? See, God doesn't promise to give us that thing that we want that we're waiting for at the end of the season of waiting. He doesn't promise that. That infertility doesn't always lead to a child. That singleness doesn't always lead to marriage. Cancer doesn't always lead to a cure, which means that our hope cannot be anchored in the temporal thing that we're waiting for. Our hope has to be anchored in something far greater, the promises and the character of God, that we take our hope and we ground it in the character and the unchanging nature of our eternal and infinite God. And when that happens... It actually leads to a type of ambidextrous faith where in one hand, we can hold on to the blessings and the good providence and the goodness of God, while at the same time, we can hold on to hardship, times of waiting, times of difficulty, and we can do so at the exact same time. That when we think about that we're hoping and God will come through for us, it's not that he'll come through by giving us what we want. It's that God will give us what we need. That's what we mean when we say that God will come through. Well, I'll close with this image that Isaiah uses of an eagle flying. This is a, such an interesting image, and yet I think the meaning is elusive to us at times, that it does become kind of a cliche, and we only understand the surface of this. And I spent probably way too much time researching eagles this week. But eagles, as you know, they soar higher than any other bird. And it's because of the strength of their broad wings. But what I learned is that the little eaglets, that's what the little babies are called, 
they are trained to, to glide that way through a repeated trust exercise with their mom. This was fascinating to me. I learned that the mother will actually alter the nest to become so physically intolerable and will even at times push them out of the nest if necessary. And so as they plummet downwards, the, the mom catches them on her wings until they learn to posture themselves properly and ride the wind themselves. Now, I hope that's true for what I'm about to say. So if you're a, a bird person, you can correct me after this. But what it seems to me, knowing that, when Isaiah links exhaustion, being weary with riding eagle's wings, what he's actually explaining is that the distress of waiting can be a type of catalyst that pushes us out of our comfortableness and so that we can train ourselves and learn how to ride the currents of faith with our trustworthy God. That we not only survive seasons of waiting, we can actually soar within them. But it's only if our hope is in God. See, putting our hope in an unchanging God who loves us and wants to grow us and wants to stretch our faith, like that is the goal of waiting. And that we will soar like eagle's wings. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not be faint when we rehearse truth about God's greatness. When we turn to him to be strengthened. When we put our hope in him. And so church, as we look to this Advent season and we learn what it means to wait, and we do this every year, let us learn this lesson well. Let us even be reminded that the good news of Advent is not that we're so faithful in our waiting, but that Jesus was so faithful in his coming and that we can put our hope in him. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for your goodness, Lord, your faithfulness to us, that you are an unchanging God. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And as we walk through difficult seasons of waiting and unmet expectations and longings that are not fulfilled, Lord, would you use even those seasons in our lives to grow us and to stretch us. Lord, help us to remind our hearts and our souls about your greatness, to turn to you for strength and not worldly things, and to put our hope in an unshakable God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.